Welcome to Terminal Talk, a podcast on mainframe and mainframe-related topics. I'm Frank. I'm Jeff. And we have with us two very important guests. We have Carl Meyer, who is an SDSM in the development organization, and Andreas Beiswanger, who is the CTO for... No, Almost. No. The CTO sounds nice. Unfortunately, I'm not there yet. <laughs> it's a future lead aspiration. Architect. Lead, lead architect. Lead architect, architect. absolutely. For, for firmware development. Yeah. So um, why why are you guys here? What's what's so important about what you guys do? Well, that's, that's a really good question. I guess we often say, well, the firmware is what makes the system run. I guess sometimes we half-jokingly say firmware is the center of the universe, which kind of <laughs> ties together all the elements, and it kind of really brings out the best of the hardware and kind of provides a lot of the capabilities then to the operating system and the upper layers. And of course, a big part of what we call firmware, and, and maybe we need to start defining firmware, firmware is all the software that we do ship with the system in order to kind of set up and run and operate and service the machine. I guess today we talk roughly 20 million lines of code kind of spread across a right good variety of runtime areas, and it kind of provides capabilities and the management context for that. So a while ago we had, uh, okay, a long while ago, we had Brenton Belmar on. He, he does Millicode. So where does Millicode fit in the whole firmware thing? Millicode is part of the firmware. Oh, okay. So you guys just, Brenton does all the work and you guys just tell him what to do. Is that how it works? Well, he Don't does. Don't fall for the trap. Don't fall for the trap. <laughs> we want to have Brenton back on. Yeah, yeah, right. He does one of some of the really important functional work, and then there's other work that kind of kind of does all the management around that. So yeah, he's part of the 20 million lines of code, <laughs> and with a smaller amount because of the closeness to the hardware and the right. performance. Right, yeah. he connects right to the hardware. Exactly. Right. Yes. right. Yes. And, and there's varying layers of firmware um, from that very know, close to the hardware type of um, firmware to the user experience we provide at the end of the day to an administrator mm-hmm. or operator of the system. At the very other end of what Brandon doing is there is the user experience that calls about that is the face to the customer. Some customer clients, users kind of kind of buy this important machine, this 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 critical asset, and this is their face to it. This is what they see when they want to interact with the mainframe. This this machine, this box typically sits in a lights-out data center, and the user ex- experience that we are providing is their means to kind of set it up, to run it, to operate it, to diagnose it, to, to monitor it and see what is going forward and how they can get best fit out of this piece of hardware. So you do the user interface as well? Yes. Yeah. So you're an ISPF guy? I- <laughs> No, it's more a browser-based user interface that oh. is graphical to a large extent, um, known as the hardware management console. And many of the things we focus on um, are running in that environment and provide the experience for the admin, as Andreas mentioned, to do all of those tasks that are necessary to get it up and running and keep it there. So what what are some of those steps that are required? Like, you know, when I boot up a PC, I'm going to see, like, you know, Phoenix or American mm-hmm. Microtrans, and it's going to tell me I have this many hard drives, this much storage, and it's going to do some stuff, and then I'll see, like, my Linux prompt or whatever. Okay. What happens when I hit the big red switch in the upward position on a mainframe? <laughs> right. right. 
Well, I guess first of all, you're applying applying standby power to it. So mm-hmm. certain circuits within the system will will have power, um, including the management infrastructure consisting of many um, processors um, and runtime environments that comprise this entire system. Um, once they they have booted, then you have the ability to really power on and IML, power on reset the system, which is all driven by this firmware that Andreas mentioned and all the various components that mm-hmm. comprise the firmware stack. What, what, what does IML mean? It's the initial microcode load. Yeah. Oh, microcode. Yeah. That's that, even below what well, No, does. well, we, we like to, to talk about it as firmware today in prior um, decades it was referred to as microcode. We okay. do have some history here, absolutely. <laughs> as, as all pieces of this, this wonderful franchise that is around for 50 plus years, absolutely. So we came through some evo- some evolution and we're constantly kind of progressing. So the analog on to what the little prompt is that, that you talked about, Jeff, is more or less a whole user interface and, 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 and manage hardware management appliance that is booting up it's a PC with an operating system with a lot of really um, elaborated code that takes a look at the hardware, kind of kind of investigates the hardware, understands what is there. It is not a PC with a single process and a little bit of memory. This is a massive kind of kind of pool of resources: 190 processors and whatever terabyte of memory and hundreds of I/O cards. And you need to kind of then slice and dice this in some usable chunks we, we call we call LPAS or partitions in order to kind of then boot and, and run your, your 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 application your operating systems your middleware your applications and th- so this is the the main task for the sysadmin that is kind of going there takes this whole thing kind of kind of slices and dices and configure it in a, in a robust and and, and, and and secure and and redundant way so it will not fail in in, in operations well and, and you guys said it was it was graphical and browser-based. I, I, I doubt most of our, our listeners has had an opportunity to see one. Mm-hmm. Can you kind of describe um, how I manage this huge machine? Do I do I do I drag pictures around <laughs> in a, an environment? How do, how does this work? Yeah. So I I guess the the example that Jeff mentioned earlier of uh, you know when I boot my PC I see the hard drives and and which processor I have and the amount of memory I have installed. Um, it's a very you know, similar approach, just at a much larger scale. So the, the first thing is to either manage one or multiple systems. And the HMC is capable of um, managing multiple systems that you then have a view to. And you can zoom in on each individual system to understand what it's comprised of, as Andreas mentioned uh, earlier and understand that I have a certain amount of processors, a certain amount of memory, and I can then um, create or define LPARs or partitions utilizing those available hardware resources and virtualizing them to to the extent that um, then when they are actually started or activated, the hypervisor does the job of 
isolating those resources to that partition. I, I'm going to do a Frank thing for a second. <laughs> that sounds really inconvenient that I have to walk <laughs> all the way out to that HMC every time I want to change something. I mean, can, can it be any easier than that? There, there is no walking like involved. It's a, yeah. a browser-based system. So whenever in the world you have network connectivity, you can this from the tips of your of your MacBook or your laptop or your or whatever you have as a, as a browser device. But yes, you need to connect to and do this because the system cannot figure out how do you want to use it. This is something that the, that the owner of the machine needs to kind of set up. It's a it's a huge pool of resources, and we, we kind of take a lot of pride that this is mainframe machine is capable of running so much workload in a single footprint, and, and there's somebody who needs to tell what is the workload that I want to run on that one. So the, the slicing and dicing is nothing that we can automate. There's no AI or a, <laughs> a Watson that comes down and says, Oh, I slice and dice the machine that way. This is something that the, the, the application architects and the infrastructure architects and everybody in an enterprise need to kind of come to grips in how they want to use this machine. And to your point, I mean, they can do that from their desk yeah. with this browser-based approach. Yeah. And nonetheless, I guess at the end of the day, it's really a, a matter of how we present this and what, what user experience do we provide to do so. Yeah, because we're, we're engineers. We like to put a knob and a slider <laughs> yes, for everything. everything. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And, but, and that is where, you know, the, the, the efforts we've been focusing on for the past few years comes in to say, users today, especially the younger generation, have an expectation on what this experience looks like. They may have interacted with other products and offerings and come come to our systems, if that is their to-be job, with a certain expectation of what that experience is. And it's currently, I guess, to some extent, very shocking <laughs> to see um, what, what we provide or have provided in the, in the past. Also, you know, things like ISPF screens are, <laughs> um, you know, neat, but don't meet those expectations. So... In the past, you know, years, we've really focused on, well, what is that expectation? And how can we provide means of managing this complex environment in a way that people that don't have the in-depth Z knowledge and understand all the knobs and dials are very capable of provisioning partitions or LPARs on this system in order to provide a runtime environment for the workload. And to Jeff's point, even if we are all engineers and we are also all engineers, we realize that we as engineers are not necessarily well trained to really provide and create a good user experience. And we really had to learn this the hardware. We were kind of unhappy with the results of the work, but we really didn't did lack the tools and the education and the training Skills. of doing this right. And, and one of the things, in particular, Carl and I, early on, several years ago, we realized that. And then IBM Design Thinking and the IBM Design organization came along and, and it really struck us as we first time heard this and I guess we I remember still today when Carl and I after the first presentation on IBM design by Phil Gilbert, we came together and said, well, this is it. This is something that we need to explore and need to kind of manage for our purposes. So we reached out to the team, we got one of the first so-called IBM Hallmark projects. So we were sponsored by the design team. We got, uh, after a little bit, assigned IBM designers. We were able to kind of kind of hire well um, designers that are trained in this, this, this craft. 
in order to help us out, in order to help us with the user research and the UX design and the visual design and all these elements that allowed us really to kind of take what we have today and move this forward, a huge leap forward into a user experience that we think is now really state of the art and, and really kind of does a great job to kind of both appeal to the existing users, but also to these next generation users that we hope to get on the box. And you've been working on this for a few years, right? Yes. This, this has been an evolution of at least five or six years, mm -hmm. right? Correct. We started a while ago. Um, I guess what we can probably say by now is making things simple is a hard job. So it really takes a lot of work. I guess we just came out of an, a really interesting project where we kind of took on, for example, the storage configuration, making the configuration of both FCP and, and FICAN storage, the, both the two storage protocols that we have in the box, and make this easier and simpler to consume um, and, 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 and smarter. And people initially said, you can never do this. This is something you cannot do. It's so complex. There's so much inherent complexity in the protocols and in the existing stack. This cannot be done. And of course, we said challenge accepted, and we worked <laughs> through this one. And it was a really hard project, and there was a lot of kind of going forward, kind of redoing it, kind of iterating. We had a, a huge set of sponsor users that we kind of owe a big thank you because they all helped us to get it straight and kind of kind of move us forward. But after coming out of the, this effort, I guess we said this is something that we can really be proud of. We, we think, and we kind of got the feedback and the data from from the users that the work we've done really is paying off, and they all conclude and and congratulate us on the way that this is kind of making things um, consumable. So, how do you take something that is so complex, and if you get thirty people in a room, they're all going to say this is thirty different uh, examples of this is the most uh, important thing. How do you take all those possible paths and descriptions for something like, you know, a storage link mm -hmm. and make it into something that is less threatening but still has the same amount of capability? So, I mean, one of the first steps is understanding what it is. Uh -huh. And we, we do know that getting to that level of understanding is the biggest leap to take to get to the desired outcome. Um, so... Where, especially for our designers on our team, the challenge lies is that they need to get their heads around the concepts, the architecture, how things work today and why they need to work that way in order to then envision what it could be and where things can be removed because they're just, you know, detail and complexity that shouldn't be exposed to the user and nonetheless provide the means to enable the user to configure or define what their end goal is and what is needed to then um, run the workload or, or run it in a, in a fashion that it meets the business requirement. And this is kind of interesting to me because you know, when you designers tend not to be highly technical people. Right. And the work that you're doing is highly technical. How did, did did you spend a lot of time making those connections? Yes. H how do you do that? <laughs> well, it's I mean, currently we're 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 just in the, the next phase for, you know, the, the the next release um and there's a lot of exploration going on. And um today, um IO configuration is largely done through HCD, which is a 
hardware configuration definition tool in ZenOS. And um, we've spent hours together looking through and, and, and working through those um, ACD screens to understand what the current user experience is, what is exposed to the user, why it's there, what it is, so that then in the next step, we can figure out how it can be um, presented in a, a much more delightful fashion. So it, yes, it involves a lot of co-creation, collaboration across the disciplines to get there. And it needs a really substantial commitment also on the engineering side. So Carl and I pretty much on a daily basis kind of sat down with the design team, kind of talked about their learning, that, that their open questions and and sometimes even multiple times a day we would kind of log in check in and kind of kind of see where they are going so so as carl said the the collaboration between what is done on an offering management side what is done on the design side what is done on the engineering side in in, in really doing this loop in in a fairly high frequency is is the key to success here do you ever get the feeling that they think you're crazy and you're just making stuff <laughs> up when you're explaining no this is actually different than this yes <laughs> all the time <laughs> yes right <laughs> Yeah, and, and I mean, I, I love, I love the questions that you know circle around. Why is it? <laughs> why is it this way? What, what the heck were people thinking when <laughs> when when they did this? And why is it still like that? Although certain you know parts of hardware no longer exist, right? Like a control unit. <laughs> right. Right. Wait, but what, the verbiage is, is all there yes. in the. <laughs> Well, is that, is that part of the problem that not only do I need to to uh, delight and engage new people, mm -hmm. I still have to bring along people who have been doing it the same way for literally for decades? Yes, and that, that is really a, a big challenge because they probably really love their knobs and dials and are, you know, take a lot of pride for their ability to – operate them and, and understand what, what they do and, and why they're doing it. So yes, it, it is a challenge. And nonetheless, our feedback, you know, over the past few years has been very positive, even from, you know, that experienced um, um, admin or, or operator. And, and we, we have tried to f find ways of initially not exposing all that level of detail providing them with means to get to um, some of the knobs and the dials that are really important to them. But if they don't need them, we're good. Sticking and, behind and it, an advanced menu. Yes. <laughs> and it is really super satisfying. I have this one picture in mind when we kind of worked again on this storage configuration where we had two very seasoned sponsor users that we've worked with a lot. And we did multiple iterations. And initially they sucked. They all suck in the beginning, and we hopefully get them better <laughs> over time, and we iterate, and we learn from that. And at one point in time, we, we had a video of this one. You see these both sitting in front of our management interface, and they smile, and they give us a thumbs up. And, wow. and, and people that are with the box, then you know you really nailed it, because you really got to the point where even they were ready to move on from something they might might not be the best, but but they know it and they, they understand it and they know how to do it and they were ready to move on to the next experience because they felt it is smarter, it's helping them along. 
It's preventing them from shooting in their knee and therefore <laughs> killing themselves, killing their whole system. Right. So they felt that if there's a, an instance that is helping them to kind of work with this machine and have confidence that the work that they're doing is kind of giving them the desired results, is, is really then ready for them to kind of move on to a, to a new experience. Yeah, I think that is really the key of showing them that um, they can be much more efficient and they can be much more confident in what they're doing because that is one of the key pain points we hear from our users is I'm really scared to touch this because <laughs> I'm, I'm uncertain of the impact and the consequence my change will have when I'm applying it. And, and that's one of the bigger changes that I think we are driving. In the past, a lot of these user interfaces built by engineers were kind of built for maximum flexibility and we exposed all possible and impossible knobs. And, uh. and they allowed you to kind of fine-tune things to the mth degree and really kind of, kind of do things better, but also kind of screw things up badly. And, and we are more on a path now to kind of really, through a user guiding the user that we are kind of providing the, the reasonable path is taking a lot away, a lot of the complexity and a lot of the paths that don't make sense. And, and with that one, kind of drive efficiency and confidence. So I, I've, I've been around long enough to remember um, HMC when it was on OS2. I remember <laughs> when that shifted over to Linux and I remember the redesign between the, the old and the new right. layout. Are, should I read into this and think that there's going to be a, a, a new new implementation? Well, we're we're currently on a path together with um, you know the larger firmware organization that that um, provides um, the firmware and the resulting user experience to identify areas of major concern. And as always, a big bang is something that is hard to do in, in, in one shot. So we're more on a path of um, constantly improving the experience, certainly with the bigger thought in mind that ideally this is a unified experience, not only on the HMC but across the entire IBM Z stack that will be the result of this effort. And certainly we're needed. Um, Bigger steps will be taken, and other things may be prioritized um, somewhat lower, and we, we can live with a certain uh, level of less uniformity for some time. I can read what you're putting out there. <laughs> Think <laughs> of it as a more cons say continuous refactoring and rethinking. As, as you see, some of our thoughts are really kind of really strategically getting us out there. I think we have a picture in mind where we want to get there. But we are not kind of now throwing everything away and starting fresh over. We are kind of taking this massive amount of capability and functionality and, and moving it forward and kind of according to priority and, 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 and some of the analysis, we are taking individual components and moving them from their current state into a 2B state where we think is we are all better off kind of having them there. You, you mentioned... You know, we've been talking about this in a kind of a very display abstract way. Um, is there – how do you accomplish this? Do you say, well, most people do these things, therefore these are the, going to be the standard? Is that based on input from users? Or do you have like a lot of automation that tries to figure out along the way? 
So Andreas mentioned earlier that um, sponsor users are, are key to that. Um, their insights of how they use it, what they do on a day-to-day basis, or what the things are that they do less frequent and what the things are that are really hard for them and they struggle with a lot. All that input guides us on um, where to focus next. Um, so that that is really key. Without that level of of insight, it wouldn't be possible to focus on the the, the real um, problems. And and with with that said, everything that we do, every experience we provide through the user interface has an associated API. So we're Initially, users may explore it through the user interface. Ultimately, I would argue, they will get to the point where they want to start automating things or integrate it into other tooling that allows for um, automation um, or defining their infrastructure through code, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. I, I spent some time configuring worldwide, worldwide port numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I could have scripted that, yeah. that would have saved me months. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, so, so I mean, that was what that was one of our initial goals to say we need that equal capability through APIs because as soon as they start automating, that will be the key to success. Mm-hmm. But but on top of that, and this is super important, but on top of that, if you kind of kind of hint it on automation, we also try to put automation within our system and put in some of the smarts. And, and one of the defining the sponsor user interfaces we had there was with a guy responsible for a data center for a large company over in Germany who said, today I have a certain amount of staff that is operating with a machine. A lot of them are right now already retirement eligible. So in a few years from now, you in the system need to take on a lot of these capabilities and these responsibilities that today the, 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 you, you kind of ask the operator to do and you need to automate them into the system context in order for me to be able to run the system in the future. And, and this is something that I'm coming back quite frequently and think about it. So we are on a path and we see this in, in, in all of the work that we are doing that we kind of putting in the smarts into the system and sometimes have two modes. The one mode is where the system says, oh, I know, I can make a proposal how it might look like. And then you as an expert, if you're an expert, you can say, ah, I might have a different thought and I kind of override this one. But the first thing is the system would put out a proposal which kind of should kind of take best practices into account. And that helps a lot in, in, in productivity, of course. And that, that's got to help people feel more comfortable with some of the changes, right? Absolutely. And it helps with these newer to the mainframe folks. I guess this is some of the learning that we had. We, we, we know that it, in, in the past it took four to five years for somebody to be fully operational and can, can be trusted to do some work but just by them or, or herself. And this is, of course, a very long time span, and we want to reduce this to a lot less. And in order to kind of take on more smarts in providing this confidence that we talked about, we hopefully kind of shrink this time to a much shorter time span. You guys have talked a lot about the hardware management console, the HMC. Um, can you put that in context with uh, what a service element is? Because I hear you guys talk about a service element a lot, and I don't know what that means. That's a good point. And, and 
the first thing is there is not just no such thing than a service element. There's a lot of people that think there's a service element, but the really true name of it is support element. And oh. this is the right architecture name for this. Uh-huh. Um, if, if, if the one takeaway of today's session is that more people in the world will understand that the service <laughs> element really is, is named the support element, yeah, I think this is a successful <laughs> t- podcast. A true story. Yeah. Uh, I just recorded these uh, Coursera videos. We had to reshoot a whole bunch of them because I kept calling it the service element. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. All right. Good job. Thank you. <laughs> so, so I'm on a long-term mission, so I'm not sure if I can retire before there's a critical mass in the world understanding that this is support element. And <laughs> Well, now the, all the Coursera stuff out is out there, and everybody's going to use that as gospel. So They Good. should. It's right. It's, yes. It, we've gone to all the efforts. We so. all have our hills we're willing to die on. <laughs> Mine is people calling a, a, a cloud solution on-premise. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 all kidding aside, and um, there is the support element, which is our um, hardware platform management appliance that we kind of build into the rack or frame of a system. And this is the single management tool. And every each of these systems comes with a support element plus additional kind of hardware componentry that does then the lower level control of the hardware. But the main user interface, the main point to the external users is really the HMC, which is a consolidation device. So one HMC is connecting up to, I think, 25 fish. And Carl is nodding, which is a good thing. He's <laughs> confirming that. Yeah. Um, systems out there, and you as a user, you won't kind of sit in front of a support element. We have some users that do this, but the majority of the users, they really kind of interact through the HMC. And we use this as a means of scalability. You have the HMC as one element that is your your main point of interaction. And then we kind of do all the heavy lifting is ultimately done down at the support element base where you do really do all the interactions with the hardware components and so on. So so to me, this is really important, right? Because you you think of the the support element as the thing that drives... Um, what's happening on this machine, mm-hmm. whereas the HMC is is really responsible across the entire, maybe even data center, depending on how you've got it set up, right? Right. Correct. Right. And I guess the, the only real user interaction for the support element is when the IBM service representative comes <laughs> in yeah. to replace hardware or add new hardware. That is really the only case where the doors are opened and they then interact with the support element directly. Awesome. Well, uh, I I see we're getting to the bottom of the hour here and uh, I wanted to, uh, first of all, thank you guys for spending time talking to us about this site. For me at least, who's been primarily a software weenie, and they don't let me in the data center very often. I'm, I'm surprised he didn't ask if um, they could add a feature for like it to play notification sounds whenever uh, I don't know an L bar goes down or something. Oh, let's do that. I, yes. I have some ideas for that actually. I, I bet you do. <laughs> but you know, as as a person who you know, you, you push one EPO button. And you're branded for life, right? So they don't let me in the data center very often. Oh, this was you. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so really appreciate you guys coming and explaining this stuff to us. Well, thanks for having us. As you probably might have kind of got it, we kind of write quite excited about that topic and something that we really kind of feel strong moving forward and driving forward. So, so happy to kind of talk about that topic every day. Yeah, thank you for thank coming you. to Poughkeepsie for the sole purpose of being on this podcast. <laughs> you make sure you do some other stuff while you're here, though. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a lot of people here in Poughkeepsie. They'd probably like to talk to you. Thanks, <laughs> Thanks for having us. Old Man Charlie, run us out. 
You've been listening to Terminal Talk with Frank and Jeff. For questions or comments, or if you have a topic you'd like to see covered on a future episode, direct all correspondence to contact at terminaltalk.net. That's contact at terminaltalk.net. Until the next time, I'm Charlie Lawrence, signing off.